0: to thousands of people. The Bible very clearly says that the crowds were there, but he called his disciples to them and he taught them. These words are for those who are committed. These words are are for those who are already on the side of Jesus Christ. They are the ones who are to be salt and light. Uh, The people who are walking past here every day who don't know Jesus, they're not salt and light. We are salt and light. It's a big difference. Also we need to understand that at the end of this sermon, Jesus uses that remarkable parable, that remarkable story of the the man who built his house on the rock and the man who built his house on the sand. And uh, great great Sunday school choruses come to mind all of a sudden and loud noises being made by children at the end. Uh, uh, The point of it being, Jesus said, that the wise person was the one who hears the words of Jesus and puts them into practice. Now, in context, what are the words of Jesus he's talking about? In context, he's talking about what he's just said through that whole sermon. Now, anything else he says as well, yeah, obviously. But the particular context, so it's worth taking this sermon seriously. It's worth going through it very closely and seeing that he talks about all sorts of practical stuff in terms of our attitudes as a Christian. We need to hear and do if we are to survive the storms of modern living. And there are quite a few of them around, aren't there? Storms, I mean. Uh, As a nation, we live in this fascinating time, uh, pre-Brexit, pre-possible Brexit, Brexit, pre-some sort of Brexit and whatever. Uh, Globally, we live in a time where, even if there were no Brexit, there's still chaos out there. Um, Somehow the idea that what's happening here is the only chaotic place just doesn't ring true to me. Uh, We live in a time where probably it's more dangerous uh, in terms of country uh, sabre rattling against country, that at almost any time I can remember. And that's quite sobering. And we live in a time where, in the midst of all this, these huge issues going on around us, and moral chaos and moral collapse within Western culture, in all that, people very happily are still in their restaurants and in the coffee bars and playing their football matches. Well, watching their football matches. And, uh, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, doing what they've always done and pushing everything of any seriousness to the back of their minds because, well, we can't do anything anyway, can we? But the whole point of what Jesus calls us to as Christians is that we can. We can. Oh, we can't change the minds of politicians. Well, not directly anyway. But we can set the tone of a whole nation, of a whole world, if we allow God to use us. Because that's what Jesus is saying here. Our role in the world. Let's start there. What is the bedrock of the role of a disciple in the world? And in particular, the church is a corporate expression of discipleship. What, do, what are we here for? Why do we... Why has Jesus called us to himself to live for him in this world? And he says very clearly, We are to be the salt of the earth. And we are to be the light of the world. There is no other, except Jesus, of course. But there is no other out there. We're it. If the world needs light, we're it. If the world needs salt, we're it. You'll find it nowhere else. The world benefits to the extent that we do the job and suffers if we don't. Now, in the time of Jesus, salt had three main functions, two of which we understand quite clearly today. The third one perhaps as more of a surprise to you. Salt was a major preservative in the days before freezers. I can remember the days before freezers. Gosh, I am getting old, you know. I, I remember things having to be fresher and little tricks of trying to keep things cold and eating things probably when they weren't as cold as they should have been and all that sort of stuff. I can remember those days. But before all this sort of freezing technology was there, we had salt... And meat especially had salt rubbed into it. Beef rubbed into it. Salt beef rubbed and rubbed and rubbed. Because salt prevented things from decaying. Okay? That's one. One use of salt. The second one, and I plead guilty to this in my youth, the second one is to make the unpalatable palatable. Yeah? It, it never quite worked with me and fish and peas. Uh, uh, I can't stand either. But most of the things I could get by on if I had to. All right. Now, I don't do salt. That's funny. Isn't that strange? Because I'm a modern, healthy man. <laughs> with a wife. And, uh, <laughs> but it does, whether we like it or not, You put a bit of salt with something you're finding difficult and just can make it more palatable. The third one is more surprising. Salt in uh, Palestine at the time was a major fertilizer. Farmers would take salt and dig it into their ground to make the ground more productive. It was, uh, if you don't believe, me, read it up. Uh, it was a common fertilizer used for that purpose, and the days before all the stuff we have these days. For, for years, I had in my shed a little uh, box of pellets which were fertilizer for the ground to help things grow, and uh, we must have moved house three times and it never got opened because I'm not the most enthusiastic gardener. And the funny thing is, because it wasn't opened and used, it was never effective. That's funny, isn't it? We are salt. We are a fertiliser. We are all those three things. We, we preserve. Let's think about this. In the world, the Christian church and Christians as individuals are to preserve things from going rotten by holding back the destructive onslaught of the effect of the fall on the world. Now, the fall's there. Adam and Eve, that whole story, everything that happened there, the, the basic uh, seed of corruption is there right the way through uh, the created order. It is there. But the job of the Christian, of the church, is to hold back its effect so that God's purposes can be fulfilled until Jesus returns. Okay. We, we are meant to be doing that. We're meant to be preserving the good. Making sure things don't go that rotten. So, for example, we're, we're called to stand against all that is wrong. We're, particularly in our society at the moment, the totally bizarre, off-the-wall madness of what our society is doing with the whole issue of sexual morality and the whole standing on its head of reality with regard to the transgender agenda and all that. It's madness. Eventually the world out there will understand its madness, but how many children in particular and people and families will suffer devastation between now and when people wake up? Who's gonna wake them up? Well, the answer is, of course, We have to wake them up. but We have to do it so gently as to make sure we're not remotely prejudiced and to make sure we don't in any way offend anybody. Listen, on these particular issues, I don't care who I offend because this is a matter of life and death. This is a matter of whether people survive or not. This is a matter of whether people walk in truth or walk in that which will destroy them, particularly children. One class in a particular school... Sorry, one school, uh, not class, one particular school now has 17 children seeking gender change. 17 children. Where's that come from? Let me tell you, it hasn't come from the children. Okay? Not predominantly. There's a whole demonic agenda out there. And unless we are prepared to stand up and say, hang on a minute, this is just not right. Nobody else is going to do it. Nobody else is going to say it. And that's where the problem is. This problem of being salt and preserving from things going rotten is costly. We're meant to hold back this this onslaught of uh, of, uh, corruption. But we're also called to do that in a very positive way by caring for the poor. By making sure those who are the most needy in society are supported and encouraged. By being peacemakers at a time when everybody's at each other's throats. I've never, never lived in a time where people of different political persuasions are more destructive of each other. It's astonishing. I have strong opinions about all sorts of stuff. But I have enough respect in me to understand that other people might disagree with me. And whilst I know they're wrong, <laughs> it doesn't give me any right to disrespect them or to devalue their views or the sincerity with which they hold them. But... That's all gone out the window now. Who's going to stand there? Who's going to take the stand and say, look, this just isn't right? (sighs) We're called to warn against all the consequences of going against the teachings of Scripture. And in in that I have great uh, admiration for the work of organizations like the Christian Institute, uh, like CARE and others. But also we have to do this by pointing to the love of God and to the way of salvation. Uh, and in doing that, we make this unpalatable world more palatable, more bearable. By saying to people who are at the end of their tether, who have no hope, and are in a stage of total confusion about what's going on in the world, there is a purpose, there is a a God who made it all, and there is a Jesus who came to save us from the consequences of our sin, and there is a day of judgment coming, and Jesus is actually the whole purpose of life in itself, and in him is hope, and in him is life, and in him is the future. We have a message to bring to people, so that in the midst of all the heartache and all the sorrow and all the pain which is out there, we can bring hope. That's part of being salt. But we're also meant to be spread out in the world. In its institutions, in its systems. We, we need Christians in politics. Ah, boy, pray for them. We need Christians in the media. Pray for them even harder. We need Christians in our universities. We need Christians in our schools. We need Christians in all areas and walks of life because by being spread through a corrupt world, we become the fertilizer which produces the growth of good things. This is our calling. I think I may have said before, uh, years ago when I was a school teacher, I was the RE department of a comprehensive school for a few years. I had a colleague, a geography teacher, who stopped me in the staff room one day and said, Stuart, you do need to understand that there are only two people in the school who really take what you're saying seriously, you and me, but I'm on the other side. I said, pardon? He said, no, I'm a Satanist. He said, I, I actually see my job as to bring as many of these children as possible into things that you would regard as evil. He said, that's, that's my calling. But if you told anybody that, they'd think you'll bar me. That's why I'll win, he said. I thought it was a very surreal conversation, but it was a real one. The fact that he and I together won the Staff and Sixth Form Badminton Doubles competition and a few other things suggested I didn't cut him off. We had some other conversations thereafter, but he was deadly serious. We need to be spread out in this world. We really do. That's our job. To bring growth, to bring the growth of good things, to stop things... Which sh- shouldn't be going rotten, go- going rotten to, to, to preserve, to, to make bearable what is a very unfair world. Let me give you an example of, of what being this fertilizer is all about. One of my favorite stories of all is, because of my Salvation Army background, is William Booth and the Match Factory. If you don't know about William Booth and the Match Factory, it's a great story. Uh, all the man- uh, match manufacturers of his day... Didn't think it was financially viable to make safety matches. It was perfectly possible. They had the old ones, you know, a strike. <laughs> and lots of people got hurt, and lots of people got damaged through those matches. So, William Booth, bless him, with his friends, bought a match factory. And they manufactured safety matches and undercut the prices of all the others until all the others changed their ways. And then he sold his match factory because he never wanted one in the first place. That's what being fertilized is all about. Looking at where there is something which is wrong, and seeking to make a practical contribution to making it right again, by exposing truth. Of course, similarly, we're called to be light. But listen carefully to this. We are not called to be a reflected light. I used to preach that we were. And there's some truth in it, obviously, because you know, Jesus is the glory and all that sort of stuff. And I had a, a great children's talk once about cat's eyes, you know, in the road. You know, and how if, if we reflect the light of Jesus possi- properly, we'll guide people and all that, stuff, that sort of stuff. But what Jesus is saying here is far more important. He's saying, you are the light of the world. Why are we the light of the world? Because Jesus, who is the, tw- the ultimate light of the world, lives within us. We're not trying to reflect something, we're trying to reveal the one who has come to live within us and among us. That's our core. Light. Now, when a person puts their trust in Jesus, recognizes that their need of a savior, and recognizes that when Jesus died, he died carrying our sin and carrying our guilt, paying the penalty of it that we might not have to, when a person turns and puts their trust in Jesus, according to the Bible, that person becomes born again. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, God himself, comes and lives within us. And from that moment, everything about our life changes. And the whole purpose of discipleship is to try to make sure that the Spirit of Jesus, who now indwells our spirits, is more and more dominant through the rest of our lives over the physical side and the thinking side and the emotion side. Yeah? This is what Jesus comes to do. To become the dominant feature of our lives. That we may become more and more like him, the Bible says. But this light needs to be seen. <coughs> and if we show the light of Jesus properly through our lives, it'll do all sorts of stuff. It'll guide people in the right way. It'll show them the right direction. It'll warn them against danger. The other thing light does, by the way, is it shows up dirt. Have you ever noticed that? Yeah? Uh, Occasionally I have a duster in my hand. Not, I have to acknowledge, as often as the other person who lives with me. Um, But have you ever noticed about televisions in particular? Televisions and the stuff under it. You dust it. That's great. And then the sun comes out. I I thought I just dusted that you have to dust it all over again. Now, it's true in every aspect. The more the clear the light is, the more dirt is revealed for what it really is. Do you get the point? Our calling is to so shine with the light of Jesus that everything around us which dishonors him is revealed for what it really is. To say it won't be popular the Bible tells us that people love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. But That's what we're called to do. So, you've got this idea. Right? We, we, we preserve, we make palatable, we, um, uh, what was the other thing? Yeah, we do that as well. Uh, fertilize and, and increase growth and we shine the light and it reveals the dirt and it guides people and it warns people. All those things we're called to do. But what hinders us from doing them? doing these things, what's in the way? Why does it just happen automatically? And Jesus is very clear about this. He gives two causes that can result in us being ineffective in what we do. He spoke of salt that had lost its saltiness and a light that was hidden under a bowl, a two-gallon bowl that was used for ground meal flour. Salt that has lost its saltiness, he says, is only good for throwing out and trampling on. Now, I never understood the significance of that until I understood that salt was a fertilizer. It made no sense at all to me. But of course, if you're digging salt into the ground and it's lost its saltiness, it's it's totally ineffective. You just walk over it. It has no bearing at all. That makes sense. It's a devastating description, though, of the emphasis of the church in our land. Salt that's lost its saltiness. Often we have compromised so much with the world's values that we are no longer distinctive and no longer have potency. In a hurry to be seen as relevant, we so easily ditch the standards and values that make us what we are. This is true in some of the areas I've already spoken about, uh, sexual behavior and so on. But also in our attitude to finances, in our attitude to seeking power and exerting power over others. In self-centeredness. and the individualistic nature of our world. Which stresses that the individual is the center of all things. And it's all about me, 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 me. And the Bible says it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not. But if we say it's not, it's not, it's not. But our lives are, 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 are. Where's the effect? If our salt is to be salty again. To be really salty. We need to be serious about a truly Christian lifestyle, modeling a radically different alternative to the ways of exploitation that we see all around us. It is a grotesque offense and a destructive reality that the gambling industry is currently allowed to ride roughshod over the lives of thousands of people without anybody seriously doing anything about it because it swells the government coffers. Just wrong. Plain wrong. And unless we're prepared to be people who say, well, okay, let's make sure we're not part of it. Let's make sure we're not going down the, oh, we'll do that, we'll do that. You know. Now, I know you might say, well, what about the local raffle? I don't do them personally. I'm not suggesting that if you... Uh, Somebody comes with a raffle ticket for your local school, you sort of say, Well, we don't do blah, 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 blah. Not. But the point is still re- relevant, the point is still valid. We have to work out where we stand and how we stand. And this is true in all sorts of areas of life which are out of kilter, totally out of kilter with kingdom values. By the way, the ones we did buy a raffle ticket from uh, a neighbor's child, we actually said, uh, No, no, we won't, we'll give you the money. And then, understandably, his mother came round straight away saying, I can't have that, here are the raffle tickets. Uh, What Was it a bottle of gin, was it? Yeah, we want a bottle of gin. (laughs) Don't ask. Um, But our impact is so often diminished because our walk with God is so poor. Please, this is not a sermon where I'm suggesting we should whip ourselves into some kind of legalistic straitjacket. Oh, we must do that, we must do that, and so on. The root of this is actually our relationship with God and the extent to which we allow the spirit of God who lives within us to constantly well up and fill us again and again and again. So we become focused and, and given over to him and his glory so that the other things don't matter anymore in comparison. You remember Moses, people? Moses had been in the, the tabernacle spending time in the presence of God when he came out, he put a, he put a mask over his face, a, a cloth over his face, because the glory of God shone from him and it scared people. Wow. Oh, that the light of the glory of Jesus would be so evident in and among us that we scared people. In the right way, you understand. It is, in the end, about doing what the Bible says. Go on being filled with the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Live by the Spirit, not by the flesh. All those things are so clear in the Bible. Everything we do, everything we do needs to be Spirit-led and Spirit-dominated. But very often it's not the case. But even where parts of the church seek to get this walk with God right, and I'm not having a go at Regent here, in comparison, we do try. But even then, we can be guilty of withdrawing. We can be guilty of putting this bowl over the light. We, we hide our light by making the church remote, a place to which we retreat and do our thing privately before we sneak back into the wider world. We sometimes see church as the place where we all come and get revved up and get this sort of injection, and then we go, oh, we're out there again. Oh, can't wait till next Sunday when I can get revved up again. Uh, We we sometimes think like that. Sometimes no one sees our light because no one sees us because we're too ashamed of who we are. Because we feel what what light we've got can't possibly have an impact. That's just a lie from hell, by the way. If Jesus lives in you, you'd be astonished at the impact you will have. Oh yeah, some things are great. Absolutely excellent. Cap is fantastic. Wonderful street pastors, another example of the church doing the right thing And there are more examples. But we are much more reticent about being clear in sharing the gospel. Much more reticent about being clear in warning of the consequences to people if they reject the gospel of Jesus. (laughs) We're much more reticent in speaking up for righteousness and for truth and for calling people to repentance. It's our calling. And I don't know if you've noticed... When people don't want there to be a light, because they you know, I don't know, passing drugs or teenagers doing something else, all the lights by the shop that are there get stones thrown at them. Do you notice that, or is that just in Essex? Yeah. Oh, by the way, people in Essex would call the river Coquet, Coquet. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so. Um, but lights get. St- why? Because they don't want people to see what they're doing. Yeah. If we're serious about letting our light shine, don't be surprised if the stones come. Don't be surprised if you're called a bigot and a fool and intolerant. Don't be surprised if you get ostracized. People say, I don't want to be with you. Don't be surprised. It's not all like that, but sometimes it'll it'll be the cost if we're serious. Nearly done. Let me just talk briefly about how we then need to fulfill the role. For some this morning, the challenge is about personal discipleship. A renewed call to commitment to the Lord, which places him first in all things. One of the difficulties for a preacher in preaching this is, and actually in most sermons, you immediately make yourself into a hypocrite. Could I be better at being salt? Absolutely. Could my light shine brightly? Absolutely. You know, Nobody who stands here is actually saying, hey guys, I've got this together, you need to do this like I do. That's not what this is about. This is about together learning from scripture that actually these things are crucially important. We need Jesus to be first, a genuine dedication which says, Lord, I'll follow you whatever the cost, whatever I have to give up, whatever you ask, you, Jesus, will be center of my life. That Holy Spirit encounter again and again and again and again. But some of the call is different. God sees your desire, but wants you to wake up to the fact that you've been hiding. Either through a a low sense of self-worth, well, I can't make any difference. Or you've been hiding behind a false separationism, hiding behind the church. And the call for, for us, then, is to raise our eyes. To get involved with our friends, with our relatives, with our neighbors and work colleagues. And let the light of Jesus shine even if the stones get thrown. Shine in telling the truth, but also shine in telling them of a God who loves them and a God who sent his son to die for them. Shine in terms of serving them and being there at times when nobody else would be there. We heard a couple of days ago that uh, a very dear friend uh, of ours, we go on holiday regularly with him and his wife. He's been here a couple of times, been diagnosed with cancer. He's 52, he's got... um, problem of the throat, lymph node, and they think that's secondary. He's also got other major health issues he's been battling with for years, which means he's he's on many other drugs and warfarin, which makes it all very complicated. The reason I mention him is simply this. uh, I don't think I've ever come across a a better servant. Oh, he's a funny guy. When he he preaches, he's always self-deprecating. Or he just builds tractors. That's what he does, he builds tractors and all that sort of stuff. But without saying a word to anybody, if ever there's someone who needs help, someone who needs the garden done, someone who needs this done or that done, he'll be there. No one will find out about it unless it's some sort of coincidence. He'll be there, sometimes sometimes in agony, because one of his complaints is psoriatic arthritis. The padding between all his joints is gradually disappearing. Some days he can hardly walk and you'll find him digging over somebody's garden. You know, This is the guy who's now got cancer. doesn't seem fair, does it? But that's the nature of the fall. That's the nature of the common lot of humanity. I'll be praying for his healing, praying for a, a miracle. Really, really will. But God calls us to be servants even when it's inconvenient. God calls us to be servants even when it costs us, especially when it costs us. Because in doing so, the light shines, you know, in the workplace, at the school gates and so on. Now, this is not for us just as individuals. This needs to be done together with mutual support, encouraging each other, supporting each other. The Bible knows nothing of lone wolf Christians doing their own thing. Now, in some ways, I'm conscious I've been quite hard, <coughs> quite, quite tough in this sermon. And that's particularly so because compared to many churches, we do things better in these areas. But God wouldn't have us be complacent. We are his salt. We need to be really salty. And we need to be liberally spread. And we are his light. And we need to be unashamedly seen. So where does the challenge fit you this morning? This deeper walk? this closer relationship so the light of Jesus burns more brightly, or getting rid of all the stuff which hides him from the world which is out there. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you, in your mercy, have chosen to allow the spirit of Jesus to live within us, and that's an astonishing thing. But Lord, we know that comes with uh, certain responsibilities on our part to to be grateful, to, to recognize what you've done for us and to allow the impact of what you've done for us to have a wider effect through this world and through this land and through our families. Lord, would you help us to walk with you more closely? Would you help us, Lord Jesus, to be filled again and again and again with your Spirit? And would you help us To be done with fear and to be done with uh, a a kind of introversion which thinks we're no good and to allow your light to shine and your salt to do its work. In Jesus' name, Amen.